Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> LA Confidential. Now, we don't usually cover grizzled detective thrillers from the 80s and 90s on this show, so here is a brand of trailer unique to that era of the kind that makes every movie feel exactly the same. They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze! Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know me, I'm keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You truly prepared to be despised within a department? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. Interrogations will be led by Lieutenant Edmund Exley. I need some backup. Come on. All right, college boy, I'll help. Now, all of them are faced with solving one case. Don't move! I want confessions, Edmund. Oh, I'll break them, sir. These people are all in the morgue. And someone has to pay for it. There's something wrong with the Night Owl. I just can't prove it. They thought they had it all figured out. Anything bothering you about the Night Owl case? The fact that you guys won't let it get filed away. I didn't kill nobody! But what started as a murder... You talk only to me on this one. ...became a mystery that could cost them everything. Why was Susan Leffert at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How about some payback, big time? We need evidence. I'll get the evidence. It was an information exchange. Do you have any proof? The proof had his throat slit. What do you want, actually? I just want to solve this thing. Even if it means paying the consequences? Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pierce, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger, Danny DeVito. L.A. Confidential. Welcome to a commissioned show that has been an absolute delight to study up for. One of my favourite films of all time, and yet one so huge and epic and detailed and daunting that I've been putting it off for years and may have continued to do so if Stephen Atwall had not stepped in with a commission. So he's the commissioner you need to thank. If you haven't seen this film, see it before listening. It is superb. It is not a movie you want spoiling or one you want to miss out on for another moment. If you have seen it, see it again to refresh yourself. If you own it on DVD, upgrade it to the Blu-ray. If you own it on VHS, upgrade it to the Blu-ray. This is the 20th anniversary of the film's release, which just happens to coincide with the first year that I started really going to the cinema in earnest. 1997 was the first time when I went beyond just going to see one film on a Saturday afternoon or on an evening. It was the year when I first started making a day of taking a long train journey to East Croydon, taking a long walk down to the Warner Brothers Cinema in Purley, and starting at midday, watch two or three movies back-to-back utilising my student discount. That's the first time I ever saw an 18-rated movie, and let me think, that would have been early 97, so I would have only been 16, and it was Scream. The fact that you guys have been listening to me talk about movies on podcasts for a decade is down to this love of film I developed in the mid-90s 
and began really applying myself to in 97. And my favourite film of the year was L.A. Confidential. Before we get into this film itself, it is important to list the crew who put this together, these heroes of cinema that spend their time behind the camera, getting everything just right in front of the lens. Curtis Hansen, the director, um, sadly, sadly departed in 2016. This is the finest movie he's ever done by a country mile. That's not to disparage his previous work. He did uh, The River Wild, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Wonder Boys, Eight Mile. These are all good films. Not sure about The River Wild, I've never seen it. But LA Confidential is a masterpiece. James Elroy, the writer of the original 1990 book. Uh, this guy was born in like 1948 and he wrote uh, four books that covered the period of his childhood because that you know as he was growing up and coming to understand what Los Angeles was like all of this stuff was sort of flooding in and he just had to exercise it so he wrote The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere which by the way stars one Leland Buzz Meeks. LA Confidential is what happens to Buzz. Gets killed in a heroin deal. L.A. Confidential is the third one, and White Jazz was the fourth one. Uh, he also went on to uh, write Street Kings and Rampart. He's still alive. He's still working in films today. He's actually younger than I thought he was. But uh, he... Have you ever heard him speak? No. He talks like a hard-boiled film noir novel. He's like, uh, oh, this is a book for all the family if your family is the Charles fucking Manson family. And, like, he's always speaking in superlatives and hyperbole. I would not allow him on this show because he'd always be exaggerating everything. I don't go to movies. I don't watch television. I don't have a computer. In fact, I'm computer illiterate. I don't have a cell phone. I don't give a shit about culture in any way. I'm an isolator. I believe in extreme solitude. I lie in the dark and brood. I hate imagery. I dislike it. I drive only through homogenous, affluent neighborhoods, all the better to avoid billboards pertaining to puerile comedies, about young boys who can't get laid smoking marijuana. I saw LA Confidential 32 times. It's somewhat overrated. It's nowhere near as good as my novel, LA Confidential, published in the UK by Random House UK, king of British publishers. Beethoven, the greatest artist ever spawned by civilization, is in a Explicable as unfathomable as he was in 1820 today. The greatest artist ever given to earth by God. I see a parallel between myself and Beethoven. I'm a megalomaniac. If you want to identify with an artist, go right to the top. He's an interesting chap and not very nice. Uh, I read the book of this around about 2000. I think just before I met you, I had just finished reading the book. Brian Helgeland, uh, who adapted the book. Now, any time that I go, boo, the writer of Speed 2 is writing the new Pirates of the Caribbean, or like, you know, there is no good that can come of this, you need to remind me of Brian Helgeland, because this guy wrote Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master. He, in the same year as LA Confidential, he adapted the book of The Postman, which is spectacular. Spectacularly bad. 
It's practically Nanar. He adapted Point Blank into Payback, also wrote, and I also believe directed, A Knight's Tale. So this is not the kind of guy who I, I believe could adapt a very dense film noir, or sorry, noir pulp novel into a masterpiece of a film. And yet, he did. And he put all of his, you know, good energy into that, and then just like, at the postman that same year. It's, it's like one of those uh, rare occasions when a writer gets nominated for both uh, an Oscar and a Razzie in the same year for two completely different projects. Mally Finn, that's Mary Alice Mann, uh, was the casting director for this film. And I've always cheered whenever I see her name because it's, it's such a, a, a memorable name. She uh, did the casting for loads and loads of movies, including Flatliners, Terminator 2, True Lies, Titanic, clearly a big fan of uh, James Cameron, James Cameron, a big fan of her, The Matrix, The Green Mile. Mally Finn very sadly died in 2007, but uh, I think she got to like 69 years old. So it's, a, it's not enough. It's not enough. There were still many years of good casting left in her. Uh, Ruth Myers, the costume designer, uh, who was born in 1940, so she was pretty old when she did uh, L.A. Confidential. Um, be- she began work in 1967. Uh, she um, the, Loads of movies that I've never heard of. The first one that really caught my eye, and it was like, you know what, I could see how there'd be parallels between those costumes and L.A. Confidential. Adam's Family. She also did Ella Enchanted, uh, Monster House. So anyone, anytime someone says you know, that uh, animated films are not films, they got in a costume designer who works in films to make actual costumes for an animated film. It, it makes perfect sense that they would treat it like a live-action film. Um, I don't think anyone ever does say, except for that idiot I once went to college with, that animated movies are not movies. City of Ember and The Golden Compass. So those are some fantastic costumes in uh, in The Golden Compass in particular. Uh, Ruth Myers, that was, still alive right now. I don't want to jinx it, but um, yeah, still going. Dante Spinotti, the uh, cinematographer. This guy's a goddamn genius behind the camera. He was the DP for Manhunter, Heat. So basically, like... So it works with Michael Mann, then? Yeah. So, you know, uh, Heat and LA Confidential, maybe two of the best shot films of the 90s. Uh, X-Men 3. Remember when I said X-Men 3 looks great in black and white? It's because of Dante Spinotti. That Brett Ratner may be shit, but Dante Spinotti can sure capture a good Hugh Jackman picture. Uh, Red Dragon. Red Dragon, folks. That means that... Having done Manhunter, they had said, let's just bring back Dante Spinotti and literally get him to do the same thing again. We like how it looked. We just want to try it with a different actor. Yeah. Got to get that uh, that uh, Anthony Hopkins in there. Um, he's also um, the uh, DP for Ant-Man and the Wasp coming up soon. So, yeah, nice. he's still working. And uh, that ju- the fact that he's doing that for Marvel says, speaks highly of uh, Marvel like really looking at, uh, at doing professional quality work. Which we've well, already said they yes. did anyway. Well, I know. Just when it I comes know. to the look of their films, yeah. the fact that Guardians looked so amazing, you know. And finally, Jerry Goldsmith, the composer. Goldsmith began in 1953, and jumping forwards, just to his most memorable stuff, Star Trek. <laughs> That's Jerry Goldsmith. Alien. Uh, 
Gremlins. Rambo. Mulan. And the mummy. So the good mummy, eh? He died in 2004 and left the world missing one of its greatest composers. And LA Confidential, some of his finest work. It is amazing. Moody music. It's almost entirely eclipsed at times by the uh, soundtrack as well, because there's some fantastic choices in amongst the, uh, the soundtrack. Let me, I've got a list here. You got Johnny Mercer, Lee Wiley, Dean Martin, Bing Crosby, Chet Baker, Betty Hutton, K Star, Frank Sinatra, Joni James, and Jackie Gleason. I'd say LA Confidential kind of veers back and forth, but, uh, but you know, very smoothly. Ve- veering back and forth sounds a lot more erratic. It seamlessly glides. glides between the score and the diegetic and non-diegetic music. And it's it, it creates a soundscape that convinces you that you're in the uh, that time and place. It always makes me think of being in a really good 50s diner. Hmm. A, non, a non-cheesy place. Mm. So we don't do this for every movie, but Sharon and I are going to take you through this chronologically to fully appreciate the elegance of construction and the excellence of attainment. Beginning, of course, with one of the best and most information-packed introductions ever. You got to ask- Come to Los Angeles. The sun shines bright, the beaches are wide and inviting, and the orange grove stretches far as the eye can see. There are jobs aplenty, and land is cheap. Every working man can have his own house, and inside every house, a happy all-American family. You can have all this, and who knows, you could even be discovered, become a movie star, or at least see one. Life is good in Los Angeles. It's paradise on Earth. (laughs) That's what they tell you anyway. Because they're selling an image. They're selling it through movies, radio, and television. In the hit show Badge of Honor, the L.A. cops walk on water as they keep the city clean of crooks. Yep, you'd think this place was the Garden of Eden. But there's trouble in paradise. And his name is Meyer Harris Cohen, Mickey C to his fans, local LA color to the nth degree, and his number one bodyguard, Johnny Stompanato. Mickey C's the head of organized crime in these parts. He runs dope, rackets, and prostitution. He kills a dozen people a year. And the dapper little gent does it in style. And every time his picture's plastered on the front page, it's a black eye for the image of Los Angeles. Because how can organized crime exist in the city with the best police force in the world? Something has to be done, but nothing too original, because hey, this is Hollywood. What worked for Al Capone would work for the mixture. Mr. Cohen, you're under arrest. Non-payment of federal income tax. 
But all is not well. Sending Mickey up has created a vacuum, and it's only a matter of time before someone with balls of brass tries to fill it. Remember, dear readers, you heard it here first. Off the record, on the QT, and very hush, hush. In terms of basically laying out everything in the world that has happened that you need to know about, it, I mean, this basically just starts off setting the tone for the whole movie. They tell you everything you need to know in such an elegant and entertaining fashion that you stow stuff away that turns out... Like, I, I was never confused when I saw this the first time. Like, every, like, and then when you see it on subsequent occasions, you're like, ah, ah and then like, it strengthens it rather than um, going, well, I, if I'd known that, it would have made more sense. It's, mm -hmm. it's very proficient in conveying information. It kind of tells you the whole movie. Mm. If you look at the the, uh, the pacing of what comes out and what he talks about and he expands from uh, the the Hollywood image that LA is trying to sell um, through all of the the organized crime stuff and the um, uh, the immorality that goes on behind the scenes mm. um, and uh, yeah I think it, you can kind of extrapolate it into a little mini version of the events of the film. It's pretty much setting up, this is what's about to happen, yeah. If you go to the original book, it's very, like I say, very dense, very, uh, there's a lot of events. It takes place over seven years. I've got a section uh, nearer the end as, as to the, the differences between the book and the film. But um, I was just wondering how much of it had to get cut out. A lot of it is really just sort of setting the tone. A lot of it is just business for the cops to get up to uh, and, and things for them to follow. And just, it's all sort of like, like I say, hard-boiled, noirish stuff going on. But so much of that tone is conveyed in what you can see and what you can hear, what they're dressed in, where they're standing. You don't need all that stuff. That allows the film to pare it down to a quick two hours and 17 minutes. But at the same time, and I said this before, and we'll talk about this at length, this film could have been two hours long, but the extra 17 minutes is to give the actors room to breathe with what they have to work with. And when this film was originally being uh, put together, the studio, uh, which was Warner Brothers, was very sort of, eh, who's this guy, Russell Crowe? Because believe it or not, Russell Crowe was a nobody at this point. This film put Russell Crowe on the map. And then, what, two and a bit years later, he came out in Gladiator, and it was an Oscar darling. Um, and I, my, my theory, by the way, is that uh, he actually probably got a lot of uh, that Oscar love for The Insider, but they didn't want to make The Insider the Oscar darling because there's a lot of cigarette money knocking around and they wanted to make sure that that was less focused on. Because um, as Jeffrey Wigand, Russell Crowe really does um, pull out a stellar performance as this crushed man, this small man, this frightened man who's doing a very brave thing and has to keep like waking up and living with himself every day. It, that's a true test of a tough actor because we've seen him kick the living fuck out of so many people in this film. And in Gladiator, he's this fucking champion. But as Jeffrey Wigand in The Insider, this ignored film, uh, that's, that's pushing Russell Crowe. And he was a nobody, and Guy Pearce was a nobody, and still, Guy Pearce is less known by clearly than than Russell. Well, he's Crowe. never he's never had a star vehicle, has yeah, he? No. Um, 
And, uh, you know, basically when Kevin Spacey was brought on board, the studios were like, okay, this guy, he's been celebrated. He's Yeah, so Kevin Spacey sort of put their minds at ease and they had uh, Kim Basinger on board and Danny DeVito and suddenly they were a bit more sort of, oh, okay, that's fine. But because of various... It's got Batman villains in it. We're fine. <laughs> she wasn't a villain. <laughs> Sorry, no, she wasn't. Okay, she was... Batman characters. Yeah. I'll show on my French flipper trick. I'm going to get that into every episode from now on. Even the ones without Danny DeVito. Even them. But that meant through various sort of ins and outs, they ended up with six weeks worth of rehearsal time, which you don't get for films. That meant that Curtis Hansen got to work with the cast and really, really, really get who these characters were. Uh, James Elroy would send um, Russell Crowe uh, answer phone messages telling him little things about Bud White. He was like, oh, he's got a 12-inch cock and he glows in the dark and he never drinks beer and he doesn't drink socially. He, if he drinks at all, it's alone because he doesn't want to let that part of himself out and to let, to let that part of himself be conveyed to other people. Just little tiny things that would never be in the film, but just to, so that... Especially the glow-in-the-dark penis. Yeah, so that... Crow had something to work with, something had more. And so basically, by the time these guys turn up on screen, they really know their characters. I'm not the girl who cared about money. I'm not the girl who cared about fortunes and such. Never cared much. Oh, look at me now. We established the, the the three cops early on, after we've established uh, the world of uh, Los Angeles, which is, it's almost a fantasy world when it, it's laid down. It's now so far behind us, it's like a reflection of our world. Well, it's, it's that time period that people who have this sort of longing for the golden age, mm. this is the age that they're thinking of, and it actually yeah. only covers a very small period of time. Yeah. It's the back end of the post-war boom mm-hmm. when America had more money than it knew what to do with yeah. and, and it was developing and developing and developing and cheap housing and new opportunities and new roads and new jobs and new cars and new music and new stars but it was before all of the corruption and inverted commas immorality that went with that was unveiled it was before Vietnam Ex- well, the I, loss I would, of innocence for America yeah. began. Uh, Vietnam actually began in the late fifties, as it was like fifty-four, something okay. ridiculously low. Right. Okay. It well, went that, on for a long goddamn time. But, but basically, this sort of this era that um, regressive individuals who seem determined to push America and, by extension, the rest of the world. Nineteen fifty-five. Apparently. Oh my god. Okay, that is a lot earlier than I thought. Mm. Um, sort of fixate on this this time which like I said I think really you're looking 49 to 54 55 now interestingly um, this like I said this is like a fantasy land because what we're seeing is they're selling an image they're selling you the fantasy and they're delivering to you in America where everything works and everything's perfect and everyone's well behaved and the reality, of course, is when you just peel back that top layer, it's just rotten as shit underneath. But the people who look back on that time and think, oh, well, that was great back then, they were kids back then. And everybody who was actually old enough to remember that things were actually fucked under the surface is now dead. They've died of old age. They're gone. Everyone who remembers this time fondly and can't remember the flaws about it was insensible at the time. And even James Elroy 
is very well acquainted. He was exactly that, a child growing up in the 50s, and he's very well acquainted with the savage underbelly. So we are introduced to all three cops uh, in a row, and um, this is very much a, uh, a show-don't-tell. We get to meet Bud, and he's beating up a wife-beater straight away, so he's a, a, a brutal white knight, and that gets you on side. And again, James Elroy uh, was a, a big fan of Bud White. He was his favorite of the cops. Elroy himself is a big fan of order, from the sounds of it. He prefers a civilization of order, order emphasized over permissiveness he would be on the stark side in uh, civil war uh, he would be against liberalism jack is established as a smooth talking uh, dean martin type and uh, he's established as to who he is with how he's schmoozing this girl and then immediately the fact that he's associating with sid shows what he tends to do a lot and then her reaction to sid shows you that jack is in fact sleazy by association and that reveals that there is something below Jack that he would rather the rest of the world didn't know that much about. In the book, Jack is much more of a sort of a hard-boiled um, Clive, Clive Owen in Sin City type. Uh, he's uh, tortured because uh, when he was high on drugs one time, uh, he shot. He was high on the drugs. Uh, he uh, he shot a couple of tourists, and he's haunted by these deaths. They resituated the character to make him Dean Martin, uh, to make him slick, cheery kind of. Uh, smooth, in-control guy on the uh, surface, but obviously hiding quite a lot of insecurity underneath that. And uh, then we meet Exley, and this is the first time that it's not show, don't tell. This is, it's not a flaw with LA Confidential, but it just brilliantly uh, underlines the... When, when there's clumsy exposition to uh, introduce a character, and it, it's, it, it's in contrast to these other two, the guy interviewing Exley tells Ed what kind of a character he is and thus tells the audience, and we all go, cheers for that. So, like, we're about to see Ed literally being a political animal and um, uh, and being the job's worth that he is and being the, uh, you know, trying to climb the ladder and not being respected by the rest of his unit. But they kind of had to establish the legendary Preston Exley early. There were probably other ways they could have done this, but I can't criticise the film. It's it, it, it just highlights the fact that those first two were just masterful examples of show, don't tell, and this third one backslides into tell and then show. I would counter that with the fact that that fits perfectly with Ed's character. He's a teacher's pet. Of course <laughs> he's a tell, don't show. The other two are, are men... Well, Bud is definitely of a action. man of action, mm. and Jack is kind of a man of slippery action, mm. sort of. But all three of them, they are established very strongly, very quickly, and you assume certain things about them, rightly so, and all three of them confound you and your expectations throughout the movie Absolutely. by being something more. They they move and you can see such clear lines about who they are and who they eventually become and how that balances. And what I kept visualising as we were watching the film was all the characters are on a, like a spider web and they're all at different points on this web and gradually as the film progresses, they move towards the middle and they all come into event you know some of them exchange moral positions um they've they've all got their image and their reality but their realities are all so many different shades of gray mm. that it, they all kind of overlap with one another i mean i i kind of outlined them as as points of opposite 
but it's it's not really opposite it's just the way they counterbalance each other you've got bud who's this impe- uh, kind of impulsive violent person but he has total loyalty to his own code mm-hmm. then you've got ed who is a total teacher's pet does everything by the book but he will, will sell willingly, anyone out yeah, stab for, anyone the, in the back. for the ideal of law yeah. you know he's like he has these highfalutin ideals but he is completely uh not immoral but amoral he he has no real um, ethical code that keeps him committed to anybody in particular. Lawful neutral? Um, possibly, He's not yes. compelled to do good. That's a lawful neutral. No, he's not compelled to do good. He is compelled to have justice. Yeah. Um, and But he, again, you see him shift. And there's, there's literal turning points that they each have, which I'll come to later on. But I also had, although you've got the three cops who are kind of the central part of the story... I would also put uh, Jack and Dudley in opposing positions Mm -hmm. because Jack is openly corrupt. He doesn't do anything to hide the fact that he's corrupt. He revels in it. But deep down, he is an honest person and he, when he does things that cause other people harm, as you say, it haunts him. They, they kind of, I don't know how it works out in the book, whether the whole thing that unfolds with Matt Reynolds is part of the story, but that guilt that you were talking about that he feels at having shot these two tourists, that comes out very clearly after what happens with Matt later on. Mm that he takes that very personally as having been his own fault. Then you've got Dudley, um, who is superficially very honourable and a very decent person and, and pushes that ideal of himself, but he's in the corruption up to his neck. The jingle bells are jingling, the streets are white with snow. The happy crowds are mingling, but there's no one that I know. I'm sure that you'll forgive me if I don't enthuse. I guess I've got the Christmas blues. What about the fashion of the time? Have they deliberately omitted? Imagine, okay, picture a movie from the 1950s in set in LA. What is everybody wearing? Oh, fedoras. Mm, fedoras. Hats in general. Hats were everywhere in LA. They, uh, specifically in the 50s, the hats were everywhere in America. That was just the style of the time. They were in England as well. Uh, James Bond wore a hat for the longest time in the, uh, in the early 60s. It was really the, uh, like the late... Like I think it was Roger Moore who was the one who was stopped wearing hats in the 70s. So this was a big deal. Very deliberately, they kept the hats off because they didn't want you to feel like you were watching a throwback 50s movie. It had to feel immediate, it had to feel now, it had to feel relevant. But just with that flavour of the 50s, the hats were just one step too much to putting you into this fantasy realm. It felt less immediate. Mm. Well, it depersonalises. If, if somebody's wearing a hat, they have to stand in a particular position for you to be able to see their face. Mm. And if you, you don't have that connection, considering how much Hanson said he wanted to put across the characters and the emotions that they yeah. were feeling, if you cover up everybody's eyes, then you immediately make that much harder. And when uh, Bud's in uh, the liquor store and uh, Lynn turns up, that's one of my all-time favourite movie entrances. She comes in in that uh, in the black cloak with this black hood with white trim, 
and it's this immediate femme fatale. Obviously, you know, this woman is absolutely stunningly gorgeous. She has what appears to be purity all over her face, but just this black cloak suggests that there is lurking danger there. Uh, so your assumptions about uh, Lynn are she's trouble. She's going to absolutely fuck this guy over. And again, those expectations are confounded because of what Lynn gives of herself later on. I would say she's definitely the most self-aware character mm. in the whole thing. She is selling the image, um, as Sid says, but she knows what she's selling and she knows what she's not. Mm. And this is our, uh, shortly before Jack busts Matt and Tammy at the movie premiere. Effectively, he's doing his job, but he's positioning his job in such a way as to open the most doors for him and to uh, um, you know present him with the celebrity that he craves. I mean, more than anything, what Jack really wanted was to be the star of... Uh, badge of honor not to be the consultant he wanted to be the celebrity himself but he wanted to be recognized for that his entire role in the film can be uh, um summed up by dudley saying don't start trying to do the right thing jack you haven't had the practice masterful casting there as well because he'd just been in what cromwell mid like mid 90s babe babe he's the cuddly pig farmer no one would ever suspect that, that particular Dudley. Mm. So that when the turn happens, it's you don't fucking it shocking. Yeah. I like the um, I like the fact that he's Irish actually, because the 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 whole thing about them wanting this relatively young police force yeah. to be the envy of the country. Yeah. To, they they want LA to be a, a wonderful place, and part of that is security and honesty and feeling that you know the the wealthy people that they want to come out and live here are going to be protected. Mm. And there's you've got the kind of classic image of the New York Irish cops that even even me. I look at that, and that seems like a police force to me. Hmm. The John Mahoney. Midwest sheriffs, that's three guys at a radio, mm-hmm. and a truck with a pig in it. I'm really, really stereotyping here. But the, the kind of more countryside... Fargo. ...type, yeah. That doesn't speak to me of law enforcement. More specifically in those areas, that's it's, it's scales... There isn't as there isn't anywhere near enough crime to warrant a police force like the one in New yeah, York. No, 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 I so agree they're dealing in it with fairly sleepy incidents. It's it's what the whole of Hot Fuzz was subverting. Absolutely, but the problem with that is that when something big does happen, they don't have the experience, they don't have the training hmm. to deal with that kind of thing, and and it's just the idea of law enforcement that's not really answerable to anybody higher is a bit worrying. But when they do try to prepare for that stuff and they give a tank to cops in Missouri... Slight overkill. Yeah. Just a little bit. But yeah, so I I really did get the feeling that in trying to set up this police force, they are trying to emulate New York. Yeah. Uh, The Bloody Christmas incident, I don't know if you caught it, was actually real. real. It was 1951, and it was uh, James Elroy incorporated that into the beginning of the book, which, as I say, took place over seven years. It went from 51 through to 58. 
A lot of what Elroy has done is take the real-life events and the real-life people and, uh, you know, Lana Turner, Johnny Stampanato, um, they were both obviously real, especially Lana Turner. Um, Mickey Cohen, he was absolutely real. And woven the fiction into the fact. Now, who could you think who has done that? A genuinely large and shocking amount of uh, police officers who were working that night uh, were uh, sent down, uh, transferred at the very least, suspended or straight up fired. And there was a big pushback from the Hispanic uh, American community in uh, Los Angeles saying, let's draw some attention here to the us versus them mentality of the, uh, the cops at the time. I really wish this was no longer relevant. I really wish it was. Um, but it reminded me of the, the, the whole... Um, I'd made a, a, a sort of a loose parallel with the uh, Rodney King beating trial uh, in uh, Arlington, but it applies to this situation as well. The idea of um, cops being put on trial for gross misconduct and abusing their power and position. I wrote it during the middle of the Ferguson situation, and I pray for the day when you can look back on that allegory and go, well, that doesn't apply anymore. That's a situation where I want to feel dated. And the uh, scene where uh, Ed is talking to uh, the commissioner, is it? Um, the district attorney, Lowell, uh, Dudley, the uh, captain of that his particular precinct, and is that the chief of police the as well? chief of police, I yeah. believe, yeah. That always reminds me of the Dark Knight now. And I want to say, folks, for all of you boys out there loving the Dark... This isn't for you guys listening, but all of the... Like, the, like, the Dark Knight is the greatest film ever made. See LA Confidential, because it's got a very similar tone for a lot of the police and commissioner and um, uh, the, the Harvey Dent stuff. It's 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 similarly hard-nosed, hard-boiled, and, and, and very pacey. And, and it feels like if, if fucking Batman had been in LA Confidential, it would be championed as one of the greatest films of all time a lot earlier. I would say so. And I would actually argue that there are elements of Batman in Bud and in Ed and elements of Superman in both of them as well. Ooh. Watch Kevin Spacey's face when uh, he's told, you know, uh, you'll be uh, suspended briefly and uh, then you'll be transferred to Vice. Uh, And then, you know, you play your cards right and do a good job there, keep your head low, and after a while you'll be back on the show. And Spacey just... This is what I mean about the amount of time the actors get to work with. They aren't being rushed through their lines. Kevin Spacey's face goes from, I know what I'm doing here, where, where, what? The show. And... Like, the amount of times that Kevin Spacey uses his face to tell us exactly what Jack's thinking without saying it in words. I mean, I know it's like acting 101, but he's really expressive Again, though, in this we've film. said this before. You would think it's acting 101, but it's actually really not easy. Yeah. You, you have to... There's a difference between the kind of acting that is outside in. I look like this character, I look in a mirror and I think, right, if I'm feeling sad, I would pull this face, Mm. or if I'm feeling happy, I would pull this face, and as long as it looks right to the audience, it will convince. That is a perfectly legitimate form of acting, but there is another kind that comes from the inside out, and you create the emotions in yourself first, Mm. and whatever comes out as a result of that emotion is what is then selling that character. And actually, I think probably the most successful, convincing 
performances are from actors who are able to blend both of those approaches because I, I like I know from when I've done stuff sometimes you get the emotion it's there inside but I just I don't have a particularly expressive face when I'm acting it like I can be feeling something really really intensely and people can be looking at me going you just look totally blank I'm not getting anything here I don't know maybe I just have a really subtle face but no I, you, I can back this one up there are t- many times over the years I've said what's wrong you're like nothing it's just my face <laughs> but I don't say smile for me honey come on pretty pretty give me a smile I never say that I know I don't need a cookie so. You wouldn't get one either with I that. Know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you'd get, and you wouldn't do it twice. Um, You'll have to sew them back on first. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um. Look for the silver lining when a cloud appears in the blue. Remember somewhere. The sun is shining, and so the right thing to do is make it shine for you a heart full of joy and gladness. We'll always banish sadness and strife, so always look for the silver lining and try to find. The sunny side of life. There's a, a, a little note in the book which I always remembered that uh, Ed, when he's uh, standing here in his suit, Jack notices because he's a detective uh, that uh, Ed's suit has little threads on it because it's brand new and he hasn't pulled them off yet. And uh, it just it shows that Ed has not been in this situation before, and he is grabbing it with both hands. Interestingly enough, the next scene, uh, Ed Ed was wearing a grey suit. And uh, uh, Jack was wearing a, bu- uh, a lovely black blazer. The next scene, Ed's wearing a black blazer and Jack's wearing a, uh, a grey blazer. And it seems like they've just swapped jackets and gone into the corridor. And gone, oh, this is four days later in a completely different place. Bud White will fuck you for this if it takes him the rest of his life. By the way, this is my A Few Good Men. A Few Good Men is Sharon's LA Confidential. Mm-hmm. As in she knows it word for word. It's, yeah. I watched it so many times when I was yeah. a teenager, over and over and over again. But that helps, like, in both cases, they've got incredible scripts. Yes. Incredibly tight scripts where every line is of value. And Pulp Fiction as well I could recite um, in my teens, beginning to end. But that's the sort of stuff that makes us sit up and take notice, just a really electric script. I was friendly with Sue Lefferts, but we weren't friends. You know what I mean? Sorry she's dead? Of course I am. What kind of question is that? Do you know why Pierce is humoring you? Use words like that, you might make me mad. But do you know? Yeah, I know. Patchett's running whores. Cut to look like movie stars. Judging by his address, probably something bigger on the side. He doesn't want any attention. That's right. Our motives are selfish. So we're cooperating. So cooperate, Miss Bracken. Why was Susan Leffert at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How did she meet Patchett? Pierce meets people. Sue came on a bus with dreams of Hollywood, and this is how they turned out. Thanks to Pierce, we still get to act a little. 
Tell me about Pierce. He's waiting for you to mention money. You want some advice, Miss Bracken? It's Lynn. Miss Bracken, don't ever try to fucking bribe me or threaten me, or I'll have you and Patchett and shit up to your ears. I remember you from Christmas Eve. You have a thing for helping women, don't you, Officer White? Maybe I'm just fucking curious. You say fuck a lot. You fuck for money. There's blood on your shirt. Is that an integral part of your job? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? When they deserve it. Did they deserve it today? I'm not sure. But you did it anyway. Yeah. Just like the half dozen guys you screwed today. Well, actually, it was only two. You're different, Officer White. You're the first man in five years who didn't tell me I look like Veronica Lake inside of a minute. You look better than Veronica Lake. Here's Patchett. He takes a cut of our earnings and invests it for us. Doesn't let us use narcotics and he doesn't abuse us. Can your policeman's mentality grasp those contradictions? He had you cut to look like Veronica Lake. No. I'm really a brunette. But the rest is me. And that's all the news that's fit to print. It's nice meeting you, officer. Are you asking me for a date or an appointment? I don't know. If you're asking me for a date, I should know your first Forget name. Forget I asked. It was a mistake. I will say, though, that Bud is wrong about Dick Stensland. I mean, I know you're supposed to know that anyway when you, when you understand it in, in, in context, but I don't get how Bud can spend all those years sitting in a car with Stensland and not twig... Oh, you're a piece of shit. Oh, no, no, no. This is the thing. He does. But Buddy's so desperate for a validating father, oh. he'll take what he can get. Fuck. And he will... He's not... Bud becomes more aware of his own reactions to things towards the end of the film. But at the start, he is almost entirely a creature of instinct. And um, his... His gut reaction to Stensland is basically his father before he went over the edge. Yeah. And that's what he's trying to preserve. He wants them to make an exception uh, for Dick. Effectively, this is one of those times when uh, Bud will bend the law or in in some cases Bud will straight up break the law. Later on that scene when he has the, uh, the, the... the ankle gun that he uses just like very calculatingly like okay right this guy shot at me to to make it okay for me to shoot him in the chest and then when he gets into that um fight with exley about it it's supposed supposed to look like justice and that's what he got justice as far as bud's concerned there are times when the law fails and he'll take it into his own hands which is kind of the the badge of the like the ideal edgelord kid these days uh, bud would be some sort of fucking hero figure uh, and frankly you could do worse than bud because he wants to protect women mm. but i do think it is very significant that he that approach is broken down in him yeah. by the end of the film bingo or by the middle of the film really yeah there is a definite point when he loses his taste for it yeah and uh, it is it, it's absolutely that 
these uh, reactions that he has and this attitude that he has, um, particularly it's outlined the way he feels about Stensland, um, is not a a good thing. It can be used by people. It can be manipulated. Mm. The fact that once uh, Dick is out of the picture, he shifts that loyalty to Dudley. Yeah. And starts doing all the bad things that Dudley tells him to do. I'm going to say as well that I don't think Russell Crowe is capable of being better in the rest of his career than he was here. It seems damning because obviously this was his breakout hit. He'd only been in Romper Stomper and a couple of other things before this. Small, small pictures. Uh, but this is so raw and explosive. And he's just he's like a, a, a caged animal just stalking back and forth. He has this incredible physical presence to him. He's a hurricane on screen. Miss, I'm Lieutenant Exley. I'm sorry to have to ask you this. I need to know what time they left you. Get her to the hospital. I realize this is difficult. Give your career a rest. Leave her alone. A naked guy with a gun? You expect anyone to believe that? Get the fuck away from me. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. Justice. You don't know the meaning of the word, you ignorant bastard. Yeah? Well, you think it means getting your picture in the paper. Why don't you go after criminals for a change instead of cops? Stenzlin got what he deserved, and so will you. It's best to stay away from the man when his blood is up. His blood's always up. But perhaps you should stay away from him altogether. And at the same time, it's this 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 quiet intensity as well is there and there's this vulnerability once you get to a certain place like even just the very beginning when he's watching the uh the the wife beater screaming and just the little flashes are going through his head incredibly expressive physical performance and uh, little things like when he uh, finds Inez Soto uh, when he's um creeping through the house you dwell on his face for a good 12 seconds or so when he sees her and assesses the situation before he glances over her to make sure that he's not that he's still alone in this situation it's that he's still alone in the room i have nothing but respect for curtis hansen for being able to evoke this level of f- facial expressiveness mm. from all of his actors career high for um Russell Crowe. I'm going to say career high for uh, Kim Basinger as well. She got the Oscar for this, I believe, and rightly so. I'm going to say Guy Pearce as well, although I re- he's fantastic in Memento. Memento was the other one I was thinking of, actually. It's, he, is, he is great in this. He has more range in this as Ed Exley. The level of transformation that he goes through from Ed at the beginning to Ed at the end is phenomenal. Mm, yeah. They all do. And it, and like I said, and as you rightly point out, it's the it's the facial performance, it's the expression, it's the mm. the way they move around. They they sell every moment of the process of change mm. that they're all going through. Um and it's it's a tiny example, but just to to back up what you were saying about the whole telling the audience what the character's feeling just through tiny little movements. When um, Bud meets Lynn and uh, she says about, you know, the fir- you're the first guy who didn't tell me I look like Veronica Lake inside of a minute. And he sa- he you just says without Veronica thinking, Lake. you look better than Veronica Lake. And then he does this little thing where his forehead draws in and it's like this flash of, why did I say that hmm. across his face? That's a really subtle thing. 
And she then likewise uh, reacts again entirely expressively with her face. Yeah. So much goes on between them there suddenly that's not in the script beyond script like direction. Mm, absolutely. And it and it's it's totally clear from when they meet where their relationship is going to go and why. And that's the thing that I think is is really fascinating about how that particular triangle between um, Bud and Lynn and Ed plays out. And she's she's completely right when she says to Ed, effectively, you will never understand why Bud and I have this connection. It's not about the fact that he's this big, tough, alpha male guy. It's the vulnerability behind that. And it's the fact that he let that out. That's the point of the attraction, not that he is big and tough and strong. Meet Tony Brancato and Anthony Trombino, two rising lieutenants in the Mickey Cohen rackets. With a dapper little gent in prison, who knows how far they'll go? The sky's the limit. Oh well. Deuce Perkins, Mickey Cohen's narcotics lieutenant. Could he be behind the hits? Is he consolidating organized crime power? I suppose not. One thing's for sure, two-man triggers are punching the tickets on the mixter's muscle. Meanwhile, rumor has it the LAPD has set up a not-so-welcome wagon to dishearten the out-of-town criminal element from filling the void left by Mickey's absence. When I know more, dear readers, so will you. Off the record, on the QT, and very hush-hush. With Mickey Cohen in prison, Los Angeles is organized crime-free, and the chief wants to keep it that way. Now in Cleveland, you're an organized crime associate in desperate needs of re-education and the ways of polite society. I hear things like those two-man shooter teams. Bang, bang, they're radio-slicing Mickey Cohen's lieutenants. Tell me, what do you want? We want you to go home. Danny DeVito, similarly, its uh, he's not the most lovable character. Um, I think maybe Phil in Hercules for just like, you know, I love this guy so much. Uh, But he's probably at his most entertaining as Sid Hutchins here. He's just this little scumbag. There's a couple of times when he straight up lies to Jack. And it's it's usually when Jack's asking about uh, Fleur de Lis. And um, he just, he folds that into his little performance to the point where I don't think we ever really see the real Sid. Mm. Well, one of the things I find most fascinating about Sid and the way he's presented is that, again, it's this idea of, of image versus reality. Sid sees himself as uncovering the truth. And yet... Everything he says, it's not a lie exactly, but it's so embellished and it's so 
um, hyper presented and so hopheads prowl for marijuana, and exactly. I don't see a single hophead prowling for anything right now. But it's it, you know this, the, like I said, you've got this idea of these um, these extremes that are kind of in conflict with each other throughout the movie. So you know you've got your, your image versus reality, you've got the press versus Hollywood, and Sid seems to occupy this sort of weird little zone in the middle between the two. Um, and then you've got, you know, the police versus organised crime. But everybody seems to occupy this weird little zone in the middle where they've got fingers in both sides of the pie. Um, and it just... It, he he does come off as, like, this amoral centre of... What even is he? He's not true neutral. No, no, he's Mortimer. He's uh, neutral evil. Yeah, yeah. He's totally out for himself. Yes. He will shaft anybody for a story. Yeah. But it's not, like I said, he has no deep commitment to truth. Does anybody? Is there anybody in this who is actually deeply, downright honest? Everyone lies. Everyone's telling an angle. Th- yeah, I can't think of anybody. Even Matt Reynolds, the uh, the kid... You know, he's, like, pretending that he's even vaguely attracted to D.A. Lowell. Yeah. Like, you may need a couple of stiff ones for this one. Actually, no, I know who is. Inez Soto? No, because no, she lied she, to... Yeah, she lies yep. outright. Fuck. Um, Lynn. Because even though everything that she does for a living is about fakery, it's an... Obvious it is an understood fakery. fakery. Exactly. You know you're not actually having sex with Veronica, with Veronica Lake. Lake. Exactly. She is honest about the lie that she's mm. selling. I love, love, love the fact, and this must be a thing for the cool girls who actually have this kind of setup. Lynn has a bed downstairs where she uh, is Veronica Lake, and men get to live out the fantasy. She has a smaller bed upstairs just for her, and it's got these little pillows that clearly she or someone she is very close to has sewn with Bisbee on them, Mm -hmm. and that's her space. Yeah, and there's the book that she's reading on the nightstand, and and I love the fact that when Bud comes round, once they have the understanding that this is going to be a relationship... Mm -hmm. um, And she does, she makes that so very, very clear. Are you asking me for a date or an appointment? You know, there's know. there's no. This is going to be hazy. We're going to be doing this weird two step where we don't Let's know. Let's dance around no. each other. She's no. very mature there a, about it. There is a clear line, and you know, you decide where you want the line to be or which side of the line you want to be. But the line is there, and then she straight up acknowledges non-verbally the attraction between the two of them, which is very absolutely. powerful. But then when when he comes round, she invites him again non-verbally. She walks into the room and holds the door open, and it is up to him to walk into this space that is her, that she is allowing him into. That is an incredibly powerful scene. Lynn is another example of how they uh, really managed to ramp up aspects of the book. She's not that fantastic in the book. I think she betrays Bud um, a couple of times. For like all your kind. For like, yeah, you are false. It's actually so much better that she looks exactly like a femme fatale, but just like the mask turns out to be just a good person. Mm-hmm. And uh, also the whole Bud and Ed fighting over her, that was Inez Soto. That was the rape victim who Ed 
marries in this seven-year period because this is exemplary of him being the hero and it's like you know he was the white knight who came in and saved her and so she was so very grateful she married him and to maintain that image he had to marry her yeah and uh she bud because he's actually the one who saved her um is they're also grappling over her because she is actually genuinely grateful to bud but it works in with better with pr it's it's it makes the characters much less likeable. That's the thing, the film shows these guys as being incredibly flawed. Everyone is in this. But there's a point in the film with all of them that you end up liking that you decide, you know what, I want you to live through this and be okay at the end of this because I can see that you could be a better person. Yeah, and it's heartbreaking when people don't. Yeah. One thing I really liked about the way Lynn and Bud's relationship was portrayed, actually, was the fact that it would have been very easy to for her to come across as she does the emotional work for Bud because she's a woman and that's what women are there to do. They are there to support men who are having emotional journeys and be there to hold their hand and, and make sure that they can get through it and blah, blah, blah. And I don't necessarily think that that is a bad element to have in story. There are a lot of films that effectively do that and I really like them. But you have to, there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. And I think when it's presented in a manner that says, because she is the girl, she is expected to do that work for him and and to be there to coax him out of himself and make him talk about his traumatic childhood. And actually, there's a couple of things she does that kind of, that shift that focus and, and put it back on him. Like when they're in bed and he's talking about the, the, um, situation with his father um, when his mother died she actually says this is none of my business and it's kind of a you know you you don't have to talk about this I'm not going to push you I'm not going to ask you questions I'm not going to insist that you do this emotional work because I'm the woman and that's my job she basically gives him the space to talk about it if he wants to but puts it very much in his hands as to whether or not he chooses to do that and it's a very gentle way that she handles him and I think she is very much why he changes but I I don't know quite how to put my finger on this it's the you make me want to be a better man thing Mm. does that make sense? from as good as it gets yeah Yeah. she's the motivation but not necessarily the reward also uh, I don't think Bud's told anyone that Maybe not even Dick Stensland. And if he did, then Dick was like, oh, that's some that's some heavy shit, bud. Please don't talk about it again. Mm. Almost definitely not Dick Stensland. Yeah. They may have been partners and they may have been close on some level, but the conversations that they have are so blokey, blokey, McBlokerson. Yeah. You know, even like Dick is at his lowest point when they have that conversation in the car park. Hmm. And even it's all front. Yeah. Oh yeah, I have a date. Hot date oh tonight. yeah, I, I'm, everything's fine. You know, I'm absolutely fine. Frankly, if the night owl incident hadn't happened, I think Dick Stenson was planning on going home and eating a shotgun. This takes place just after the uh, uh, montage where they show the two-man shooter teams. Um, by the way, Deuce Perkins, who gets mentioned, uh, who gets shot while he's uh, trying to uh, cut the uh, heroin, uh, in the book apparently likes to fuck dogs, so don't feel too. Sorry for poor Deuce Perkins. 
uh, and Anthony Trombino. I don't know anything about Trombino, but uh, probably hung around with Deuce Perkins. So there are 80 speaking parts in this. So many great names. But uh, if you look very carefully, it's uh, uh, Bruning and Carlisle are the two Manchuda teams the whole way through. And at the end of the montage, they're there at the Victory Motel while uh, Bud is beating the living fuck out of uh, a guy who um, Dudley wants to muscle out of town. When you go back through this again, everything has all been slotted into place for you to go, of course, it's right there. Why did I not get all of this stuff before? This was positioned as a mystery, but it's so much more of a sort of an epic thriller that continues to thrill once the mystery has been fully unraveled. The various scenes in the middle with the Negro youths, I don't know quite how else to say it. Uh, the, I don't want to say black-coloured African-American. I'm going to say that word simply because while the colour representation in this film is for shit, it makes a very clear point that sociologically the black community and the Hispanic community were third and fourth class citizens in LA in the 50s. The only time the cops ever interact with them is to lean on them, to threaten them, to beat the shit out of them, or to shoot them. It's fucking abominable, but it, it makes a overt political statement nonetheless. To the point where I feel like kids in every school in America need to see this film. <laughs> Obviously, they'd get a few parental complaints, I think. One or two. But it's probably a good idea to make sure that millennials and... What's the generation after that? Generation Y? Uh, iGen. That iGen uh, grow up with no illusions that the 1950s was a golden age for America without the knowledge that everything was fucked underneath. There are various ways you can approach this. We're getting better all the time, but power concedes nothing without demand. However, the interrogation scene, which uh, Ed pulls on these kids, is fairly masterful use of both scripting, editing. The performances just ramp and ramp up. It starts off just a, a regular conversation back and forth, and then the whole... Um, you know, I'm talking about the gas chamber and you haven't even asked what this is about. you got a big guilty sound around your neck and then it escalates some more and it eventually explodes. Purely in terms of script economy, we start with one crime and get moved on to another entirely unrelated one that we aren't sure yet is unrelated. But the realisation of that moves in parallel with Ed. In effect, since we're seeing things from his point of view, the audience are the ones pressing for information. And then when Bud bursts in, we, like Ed, can only stand back aghast as the situation is yanked away from us. Bud makes this new crime his business by virtue of his personal demons. I just wanted to lose my cherry. She don't die, so I don't die. She don't die, so I don't die. Lewis, who's the girl? What's her name? Who are you talking about? Was she at the night out? <laughs> Lewis, listen to me. Was she at the night out? <laughs> she don't die, she don't die. 
Did you kill her? You wanted Lewis to lose his cherry, but that wasn't enough. So things got out of hand, and you made her bleed. She bled on your clothes, so you burned the clothes. I told you that. Now listen to me. If that girl is still alive, she's the only chance you've got. I think she's alive. You think? Then where is she now? Did you leave her someplace? To sell her out? <laughs> Tell me where she is. Move. <laughs> <laughs> White? White oh, oh, Six! Where's the girl? White, I have this under control! Put the weapon Where down! Where is the girl? What? Sylvester Fitch, 109 Avalon, Brown Corner House, upstairs. But it's a fantastic way of, of selling us exactly who Ed is and what he's capable of. And that uh, if we took him to be just some, you know, wet behind the ears kid, we're underestimating his abilities mm. and also his survival abilities in this cutthroat world. Absolutely. And there's two levels to this as well, because the beginning of the uh, interrogations, although what Ed's doing is really clever, it also comes off as really scripted mm. and something that he's planned quite carefully. Yeah. But when it sh- when the tone shifts and Lewis starts talking about the girl... And starts giving up new information, he's able to improvise around he it. improvises. And you can see he kind of... His, his breathing gets faster and you can and he does shift in his body language completely he's not standing up anymore he's sitting down and 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 really getting involved in it Mm. um but this is like you say his capability in doing what he really wants to do Mm. this is when it starts to come through and you start to realize oh actually he's not just a book learning Mm. cop um who is going to fall apart when the pressure hits and Ed's gone in like a scalpel and just very carefully with brief deft movements managed to whittle the information out of these guys and then it's finished off with Bud coming in like a fucking sledgehammer to get the final important details. And it's this... Inadvertently, they're playing good cop, bad cop and it's not been organised. So when it actually is planned later on, it feels like something that's finally coming together. Yeah. But um, I also like the fact that there's, there's for all of his corruption and lies and, and sleaze, there is one thing that Dudley says which is completely true, which is that the Force needs strong men like you, he's talking to Bud at the time, mm-hmm. and smart men like Exley. And he's absolutely right. However, again, this idea of them coming to the middle and shifting position, mm-hmm. where this all turns around is Bud being smart mm-hmm. and Ed being strong. Yeah. E- emotionally and morally strong, rather than physically strong, but it's strength coming through rather than his cutthroat smartness to get what he wants to happen to happen. Both of them are underestimated by Dudley and by the audience. As I said, they are confounding our expectations. And by each other. They constantly underestimate each other. They loathe each other. Yes, they do. There's a point where Ed says that Dick Stensland got what he deserved and so will you. And I think at the time, Ed's talking about dismissal from the force because he was the one who started Bloody Christmas and uh, was the ringleader. 
he just forgot at the time that uh, Stensland had been killed in the Night Owl Massacre, which he'd been investigating. And just that little brief moment, and then suddenly Bud is practically on him, and it's this fantastic... It's, it's almost playground-like, the, the, the way that, um, the, you know, the, the, the little smart kid goads the giant, beefy, amazingly strong kid. Mm. Well, they're, they're children on, on many levels. You can see every element of where these characters' inner child basically comes out to dominate proceedings. Mm. And it influences so much of what happens, so many of the events that are significant and weighty and uh, and drive the plot forward. Every, the, the thing about don't go after the guy when his blood's up, his blood's Everyone always up. up. Everyone's blood is, is always, always up. up in this. And they, there's so many, I don't want to say thoughtless because that's not quite what I mean, but so many impulsive, instinctive actions that there's so much death in this that could be avoided if everybody would just calm, calm the, the fuck, fuck down. down. Maybe if your police headquarters wasn't shaped like a cock and balls. It might help, yes. It was. Now we love There's a montage here, uh, again, uh, of um, everybody getting what they wanted, because this is after Inez gets uh, uh, rescued. Ed gets the respect and the highest honour, the Medal of Valour, which is what he always wanted. Did his father get the uh, Medal of Valour? Was he awarded posthumously? Sure. He was just shot by a, 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 a nobody, so that wasn't a he hero's died, he death. He died in the line of duty. He, he died mm. acting as a police officer. Either way, there's there's something in Ed which kind of reminds me of Steve Rogers, as in he's trying to constantly live up to this father who he never really knew, certainly not into adulthood. Uh, in the book, he did know his father. Um, Exley Senior is around uh, for a, a lot of the time. Uh, I believe he uh, ultimately does die. The the villain in the end, after this seven-year version of L.A. Confidential, is Ed Exley's father or uncle, most probably uncle, who is also Walt Disney. He's got like this. He's he's opened Disneyland outside of L.A. because, of course, this is a parallel of the Anaheim co- um, project in in real life, and uh, he's got like 
Dinky Doodle Duck or something like that. And the whole thing was so that he could get the land for Disney World or something like that. It's one of those shit endings uh, and nowhere near as good as what they did in the film. And yet slightly more personal because it's Ed's own blood who did this. But you know... The, the character himself is barely in the rest of the book, so it's one of those, ah, oh, you didn't expect the guy with the mop. And it's like, well, that's a shit ending. <laughs> so anybody who tells you that the book is better than the film in this case is wrong. from the film the uh, the strong personal connection by the fact that it is it all feeds back to Dudley because he is this sort of very strong father figure for mm. all of the younger men yeah um, and I, I really do like the way once once they start investigating properly and it all comes out about the fact that he used to work with um, Meeks and Stensland and, and where it all originated from. The fact that you do then get this backstory for this guy, he, he there's this hint that he wasn't always this fatherly, benevolent figure, um, that ultimately everyone comes from somewhere and everyone is going somewhere. There's um, uh, shots of Jack going, uh, getting back on the show and... Uh, um being back on Badge of Honor. There's also shots of uh, Pierce Patchett. We haven't even mentioned David Strathairn yet. What a class act. He is phenomenally good as Pierce Patchett in this, as in he embodies that character with just this this calm and owning the scene, even though he is, you know, up against quite a few hard-ass cops in this. And he is on a moral tightrope the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I noticed at one of his flirtily parties, there was a Shirley Temple and it was it was bone chilling. I just thought, please, please let that just be like a model who hangs around at the flirtily parties and doesn't get involved with anything else. I feel like if Bud White had walked into the room at that point, he would have beaten Pierce Patchett to death. Quite possibly. But Bud, at this point, this is when uh, he uh, he loses his taste for it. This is when um, he's. He, 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 want, he washes his hands. Mm. But also, that, that's another thing that impresses me about the way Bud's character and reaction is handled. He, is, he does start off as this very blunt instrument white knight. At no point does he demand that Lynn give up her livelihood, condemn what she chooses to do, or see that whole scenario as anything other than this is her choice. In fact, he even says they get, they only get Veronica Lake. I get Lynn Bracken. Yeah. And he seems quite fine with that. The only thing that pushes him over into downright anger um, is when she hooks up with Ed. Yeah. And that's personal. That's not to do with the fact that she was with somebody else. Her uh, response to him is incredibly reserved, but um, again, you can see in her face what value she places in him the the scene when uh, he hits her twice that's a really really hard scene for me because that, that's uh, I despise men who beat women as much as Bud does so I can um, 
project myself into him to see what a monster he would then consider himself immediately afterwards. It's an unforgivable thing to do. But that's the point of that scene, and I think that the way it's framed is very clear how unacceptable it is that he's crossed that line. And again, Kim Basinger could just cry at this point, but the way her face creases up, she's very well aware of what has just happened to him internally. When Jack uh, meets Matt Reynolds again, and... um, Again, watch Kevin Spacey's face. For uh, He's incredibly nervous and awkward about this kid that he's already betrayed once. And just watch for the point where Spacey, well, Jack, realizes that Matt Reynolds doesn't recognize him. It's just he goes from being sort of very nervous to suddenly, oh, hang on, he's talking about Fleur de Lis. Not only am I going to get away with this, but I might actually learn something a bit more about this case. It's, a, again, masterful bit of uh, physical acting. And... And Jack's guilt has already been, you know, boiling under the surface. uh, And this pushes him a little bit more and starts to really prick at his conscience. Leaving the uh, $50 bill just in a bar, and that was a lot of money in those days as well, Mm. uh, is uh, indicative of of Jack really turning a corner there. Much the same as Bud leaving the the beating station of just deciding, I don't really want to do this anymore. The point where Jack walks in on Reynolds, hoping for the first time in as long as he can remember to actually be a stand-up guy, and finds him murdered. Spacey's face is a picture of measured, crumpled disappointment in himself, and a regret that would eat him up inside. It's not overplayed, it's quiet and poignant, and you can feel Jack's pity for Matt, as well as for himself. Reynolds is positioned here as an innocent fool caught in the crossfire that takes place nightly behind the scenes of this version of Hollywood, a naive casualty of war. And this scene is, as with the interrogation scene, Bud and Lynn growing close in the bedroom, Dudley's turn and the Victory Motel shootout, an amazing combination of complementary filming factors. Shot composition, acting, editing, music captured perfectly by a director who this evening was at the top of his game. This is underscored by Joni James singing How Important Can It Be, a song about absolution from past transgressions and attempting to move forwards a wiser person, which somehow parallels both men in this scene. And both men ultimately fail. And yet both deaths lead the surviving heroes to justice being served. How important can it be That I've tasted otherly That was long before you came to me With the magic of your kiss So the story got around Of an old romance and me But it happened oh so long ago How important can it be Mine was a young and a foolish heart Seeking love at every turn But I have grown so much wiser now Even foolish hearts can learn 
Let the past just fade away Why get lost in yesterday The important thing is here and now And our love is here to stay And I think for... I'm not sure exactly where Ed's turning point comes... Um, but it is clear that he's made it when he tells Bud that he wants to pull everything down about the um, the Night Owl case. Even though he got this medal, even though everybody thinks he's so wonderful, it's not enough. I think the exact moment comes when uh, Jack dies and um, or Dudley asks him to check out a name uh, of Rollo Tomasi and then there's that... sound of uh, his Jerry Goldsmith's this, this quiet grating sound in the background which also happens when Jack is killed uh, have you a valediction boy oh, listen out for it next time it's played both times just the name Rolla Tomasi that's enough to push Ed to because there at that exact point he realizes that he doesn't know how dirty Dudley is but he knows Dudley's dirty and that was his father figure getting dropped away and that removes the foundation that ed had built all of this i'm still doing the right thing on top of Mm. and that's the point where he has he makes less of a turnabout as much as his world collapses and he manages to stay upright while it happens Mm. his his he stands still the world turns around him yeah vincennes i need your help with something i'm busy right now why don't you just go ask some of your boys in homicide i can't I need someone outside of homicide. I want you to tail Bud White till he goes on duty this evening. Why don't you do me a real favor and leave me alone? Do you make the three Negroes for the Night Owl killings? What? It's a simple question. Why in the world do you want to go digging any deeper into the Night Owl killings, Lieutenant? Rolo Tomasi. Is there more to that, or am I supposed to guess? Rolo was a purse snatcher. My father ran into him off duty. And he shot my father six times and got away clean. No one even knew who he was. I just made the name up to give him some personality. What's your point? Rolo Tomasi's the reason I became a cop. I wanted to catch the guys who thought they could get away with it. It was supposed to be about justice. Then somewhere along the way, I lost sight of that. Why'd you become a cop? Uh, Jack in the book is not killed by Dudley, uh, who again is a villain, but uh, he's not the main villain. It's uh, Exley Senior, and uh, uh, Dudley, in fact, lives the, through the whole book, and in fact, dies in a retirement home in White Jazz. Uh, and I believe he was in a previous book as well. And in the book, you already know that Dudley's filthy the whole way through. So it's again a, not a reveal. Jack dies suddenly by accident during a routine bust. It's 
kind of pathetic. He gets shot from a stray bullet from a train or something. And it's like, oh, well, that's realistic, but not brilliant. Uh, but the actual, the turnabout at that point, the audience, I remember gasping at that exact point. And just, um, Kevin Spacey actually asked, because when um, when James Cromwell's leaning over him and going, have you ever had addiction, boy? He found it very hard to, to, to let his eyes go completely slack. It sent shivers down Curtis Hansen's spine when he saw Kevin Spacey effectively allowing the light to leave his eyes and to die on camera. They can do this now digitally, but Kevin was able to actually act it out. To do that, he asked the um, set dressers to put two black dots on the kitchen wall behind James Cromwell so that his eyes would be able to lose focus and then drop into the middle distance. And it's one of the most convincing, chilling deaths I've ever seen on screen. And it's coupled with this horrendous betrayal. And I think, again, a masterstroke of exactly how the moment happens. Jack is shaking a few drops of coffee off his hands because after um, Dudley gives him the coffee cup, his hand is shaking ever so slightly. And so Jack gets a bit of coffee on his fingers. So the actual movements are he's shaking and Dudley turns around and shoots him under his arm in his heart. And it's such a you are not expecting that it is not flagged moment. Bad horror movie directors are very, very good at flagging exactly when someone's going to die by having na 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 build up. It's not even when someone's going to die these days, is it? It's just when the jump scare's going to come. The cat's about And then to the jump thing on. doesn't happen, and you go, oh, all right. And then the person turns around, and the camera moves ever so slightly, and then bang, boom, blah, 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 blah. That is cinematic language for there is a sting coming. This is we're not going to tell you that this is going to happen. We want you to gasp. And it works brilliantly. There's just the right amount of busyness movement that's boring on screen. It's not boring, but it's it's mundane for the sudden gunshot out of nowhere while they're having this conversation where you're not like there's no big turn where Dudley's eyes go all shifty in twenty-four. I always use the term twenty-four eyes because of what I saw of the first season of twenty-four. Anytime someone was actually uh, surreptitious and was in fact uh, lying and a spy and was evil, they uh, went from being good to having evil eyes. And it's obviously it's been done in many, many other places, but I just equate it with twenty-four eyes. And same as as uh, Hero's exposition of your father was one of the most brilliant technicians. And he died yesterday. But yeah, one of the greatest turns in cinema history for me. What's going on, midnight, Jack? I need two minutes, Dudley. It's important. That's a good thing for you, my wife and four fair daughters are at the beach in Santa Barbara. Do you remember Buzz Meeks, Dudley? A disgrace as a police officer. Straight D fitness reports from every CEO he ever served under. What about him? Twelve years ago, he was on a vice rouse with Dick Stensland. They questioned Pierce Patchett about a, a blackmail scam. Patchett had Sid Hudgens photographing prominent businessmen with hookers. <laughs> anyway, charges were dropped. Insufficient evidence. You were the supervising officer on that case, and I was wondering if you remember anything about it. What's this all about, Graham? Part of it has to do with a murder. I've been working with Ed Exley on it. You're a narco, Jack. Not homicide. Since when do you work with Edmund Exley? Well, it's a private investigation. Uh, 
I messed something up. I'm trying to make amends. Don't start trying to do the right thing, Boyo. You haven't had the practice? Buzz Meeks and Dick Stenzel. So, uh, what does Exley make of all this? No, I haven't told him yet. I just came straight from the record table. Once again, in the book, it just sort of happens and it doesn't really register. I would say that the film is better at being a film than the book is at being a book. But also that the film is better than the book. In terms of what it sets out to do and what it accomplishes. And in terms of everything else that is in there. There was one more thing I just wanted to um, to draw particular attention to, actually, and there's there's a line from Matt Reynolds that sums up something really key, I think, to the, the main characters, um, and that's when he says to Jack, when I came out to L.A., this isn't exactly how I saw myself, and Jack says, get in line. There's a, a back and forth where they're talking about why they became police officers, and um, Ed tells... Uh, Jack about the whole Rolo Tomasi thing Mm -hmm. and that he became a cop because he wanted to get the guys who got got away away with it it. and bring them to justice and he asks Jack why he became a cop and Jack just it takes 18 seconds of thinking yeah And, and his only response is I can't remember and he looks devastated at that revelation that he can't remember he goes through the whole thought process again physically just on his face yeah it's it's fantastic mm. this might be one of kevin spacey's finest before uh, let me think what's it up against you know what yeah kevin spacey's finest performance is fantastic i know it's a support role technically i think he was i don't know it's originally this was going to be uh, they were going to conflate the three cops into one cop and it was going to be played by george clooney I know, no. Really? This is what the studios wanted. My God. They're completely different. The the lines between them are the point. I know. I know. There had to be these three cops, and the fact that they give them each strands to go down means that none of them are really emphasised over the others until Jack's death when you realise that it's down to just two. Either of them could die, but at that point suddenly the focus pulls in because they like very shortly after that it starts to ramp up there's another point when ed ed begins um his descent that he's pushed over the edge when um dudley says rollo tomasi then that's when inez tells him that she lied 
that he has been complicit in this. And it's something he's been telling himself all along, I'm doing the right thing, you know, I'm just being a good cop. She's laying on the line something he can't ignore anymore, that he profiteered on, and again, this is about representation in, in, in this era, on the public perception of what Negroes were capable of. And he was able to kill these men that no one would mourn for, uh, because no one was going to ask any questions, and he was effectively played at that point. They were gearing it up for Bruning and Carlisle to just kill these guys, but Ed ended up making himself a uh, exemplary officer, and Dudley just picked it up and ran with it. I think, though, that that turning point, um, it could have been pl- he could have played it that. Ed's desire for justice by the book mm. wins out over the fact that this was Inez's only way of getting any kind of justice. Yeah. Um, and he could have told the truth. That really would have pulled the whole thing down. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, and, and the way his his reaction to Dudley at the end turns out, deep down, justice, full stop, is more important to him than justice by the book. Yeah. Ultimately, Bud, uh, Bud's reaction of sometimes the, the law isn't enough and he takes it into his own hands. Ultimately, it's an acknowledgement that the system can be and will be played and that to attain true justice ultimately requires you to step outside of that system that is prone to corruption. He has literally had it put in his face that the system is corrupt. Absolutely. But everybody has to have their own line. We've talked about this before with Batman, that basic and, and the idea that stop making your villains total and utter unhinged individuals who have no line and will do anything, um, because that's not a character. Um, just a rabid animal. Absolutely. But the the idea that if you're going to exist in a corrupt system, to some degree, you are going to have to um, break the rules or work outside the rules or, the, you know, the rules aren't always going to be something that you can work in your favour. Um, but you have to have a line. You have to have your own line. There needs to be something internal that you're stuck with, that, that is, is you, and that doesn't shift. I want to uh, give a shout out to Gwenda Deacon, uh, who of course died in November 2006. She was an old lady, although she was only 60 when she died. Do you remember her from Terminator 2? I do, yes. How about a beer? She was, my Susie was a good girl. Again, one of the incredible support cast of this. It's heartbreaking seeing this woman discover that her daughter is dead and yet at the end like when she's like is it a rat she's got this sort of quirky odd funny quality to her but just everybody in this film in their support roles and in their lead roles just really like pulls their weight and delivers more than the average movie would expect of you Oh, and Johnny Stampanado was a real guy, and he really was dating Lana Turner. Uh, although apparently, according to James Elroy, uh, it was in uh, 1954, and the events of this film take place in 1953. They kind of split the difference, and rather than it taking place over seven years, it all basically happened from Christmas 52 through to uh, like middle end of the year 53. But 
uh, Hansen's theory was that if there's one thing they did in Ella Confidential that uh, James Elroy uh, probably would have liked to have had in the book, it's... Want an autograph? Write to MGM. Since when do two-bit hoods and hookers give out autographs? What just say to me? LAPD, sit down. Who in the hell do you think you are? Uh, take a walk, honey, before I haul your ass downtown. You are making a large mistake. Get away from our table. Shut up. A hooker cut to look like Lana Turner is still a hooker. Hey! She just looks like Lana Turner. She is Lana Turner. What? She is Lana Turner. I love that. I love the fact that he then goes back into the sits in the car and laughs about it. It's so humanizing. Yeah. You need that levity at that point because it's been really. There's been some hard going stuff in the uh, film, but uh, it just it kind of hammers home the fact that there's all of this confusing veneer going around to the point when actual truth turns up. You don't even know what you're looking at at that point. How do you face with sunshine? Put on a great big smile. Make up your eyes with laughter. Folks will be laughing with you in a little while. Whistle a tune of gladness. Bloom never was in style. The future's brighter when hearts are lighter. So smile, smile, smile. Question Why didn't this win all the Oscars? Um, it doesn't sell a terribly flattering picture of Hollywood. That's exactly what I theorised when we uh, watched the ceremony in early 1998. I was like, well, of course they're not going to stick LA Confidential in the spotlight and say, let's show everyone what Hollywood isn't. The, the Academy adore the business of making movies when put on screen. They love it. But they all like it when it's like, oh, the business of making movies, oh, it's so cutthroat and it's so silly and it's so oh these people like they're great big phonies but they don't like it when it's like yeah it's corrupt as shit like that's that's one too hard it's like the roast of hollywood and hollywood ends up crying at the end <laughs> the other thing was of course a little movie called titanic came out at the end of that year and the beginning of uh, the year in the uk and and the academy decided let's give all the awards to titanic mm-hmm. All of them. Yeah. Well, Titanic, to a point, is about selling the dream of America. Yeah. We will be doing a show on Titanic. I actually really, really like Titanic. Well, we've got to do a Cameron season. Mm. We're going to do the four remaining Cameron films we haven't done yet. That is The Abyss, that is True Lies, that is Titanic, and that is Avatar. And for the Cameron season, you will just have to wait for The Abyss to come out on Blu-ray. Because that's not happened yet. It's not ever been released in HD at all. And the DVD is just a lazy port of the 1993 Laserdisc. That means this movie hasn't been updated for home format since the early days of the Clinton administration. So poor Sid Hutchins gets beaten to death. Ed and Bud 
finally team up. You've got brains and brawn, and it's sort of a yin-yang with a little bit of brains inside the brawn and a little bit of brawn inside the brains. And there's that brilliant shot where they uh, bust into Pierce Patchett's pad and uh, they go. Bud goes to the front and Ed goes to the left. And uh, it's this sort of L shape where they're actually kind of watching each other's backs and they, it's, they're working in tandem at this point. It just, it flows. And um, Ron Rifkin as D.A. Lowe is this caricature of the worst kind of businessman. Just like someone you just hate so much when you see him at the beginning and he's this weasel who's like, I like this Ed kid. He's very easy to manipulate. And he's absolutely fine with stabbing his own friends in the back. Um, and so like, you just want something bad to happen to this guy and they go way overboard with what happens to him. That whole, like, he's, at, he's in the middle of saying, I don't care when kids die. Fuck it, you know, no one's going to eulogize them. And then he's slammed into the mirror and then flushed down the toilet and then shoved out the window. There's that bit where um, uh, Crow smacks his face against the balcony and it doesn't go. And then he smacks it again. I'm fairly certain that that was not intentional. They were just like, oh, fuck it, just keep going. Just keep smacking this guy through there. Um, so, yeah, that's there's a sort of a joy in, in finally seeing these guys working together and accomplishing a lot suddenly at this point this could just have been the pilot for a tv show and like so, like from this point onwards it's these guys working together and he's the brains and he's the brawn which brings me to the la confidential tv show did you know about this you heard about this i haven't had time to sit down and watch it because i've been i, I sat, sat and started watching the extras from lunchtime today and i was going through till seven o'clock there's a lot of extras but they actually made a pilot for an LA Confidential TV show, still set in the 50s. They completely recast everybody and you won't recognize anybody in it. Oh, there was gonna be someone quite important. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland was going to be Jack Vincennes, yeah. Oh, it's Melissa, Melissa George played Lynn Bracken and Eric Roberts as Pierce Patchett. So yeah, the entire um, pilot is on the Blu-ray disc and the two disc special edition of the uh, DVD. I kind of want to watch this, but not right now. I very deliberately didn't want to watch this right now because I didn't want it to take up too much real estate time where we talked about this. It's going to love that uh, tagline, uh, or the summary, though. What, uh, three policemen, one straight-laced, one brutal and one sleazy, investigate a series of murders with their own brand of justice. Well, that's really oversimplifying things, isn't it? Get some hats on them. <coughs> and this is key for Sutherland, and people were like, well, he's not going to work well in TV. And it was just before there was this TV show invented where they had shifty eyes. Do they have dogs with shifty eyes? I don't see this um, TV show actually having that much of a lengthy tail. Do you? I mean, like... It's a police procedural. It can go as long as they can think of crimes. It's one season... Two, if you add loads of filler episodes. Mm. But then again, I, well, I was going to say you could say the same about Preacher, but ultimately, like, you've got ten seasons of Preacher. Why would you start with a completely superfluous first season that impresses nobody? Baffling. That's why we don't work in telly, folks. Anyway, so uh, there's the showdown at the Victory Motel. Top five movie shootouts. This might even be in the top three. It may even have a chance at the number one spot for me. Simply in terms of how it's constructed, the quiet start where it's suddenly they're like, okay, we're about to get ambushed here. You know, they lay down the geography of their surroundings. 
how they're able to fortify the uh, the rooms they're in, their low ammo, their small amount of guns, doing what they can with the buildings to get the tiniest of advantages, and just the stakes keep raising up and up, and it's like they're not going to survive this one to the point where um, the actual the finale is is like for the first time when I was watching, it, I was like, oh god, no, 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 because it just felt like at that point they could both die. And that's the end, folks. Dudley succeeds. And it comes within a hair's breadth of being this, this tragic, tragic ending. And it's that's what makes it feel so much more triumphant when it sort of pulls it through. And Dudley getting shot in the back. I remember James Cromwell actually said he was like really pleased with the fact that this complete scumbag got to buy it and get shot in the back in that way. Exley's deposition at the end. I, th- I think there's a lot of Exley in James Penrose. The way that um, James summarizes the events at the end of uh, Secret Rooms, I very much looked at the way Exley was like, right, here is everything you need to know about what you've just seen. Kind of the other bookend for what Sid Hudgens at the very beginning lays down the LA you're about to see, and Exley tells you what actually happened. But it's so economical, and it's so clear. You want to tell me what you're smiling at? A hero. The fact that you found out Ed's survival abilities when he was in the interrogation room on the other side of the wall, he shows once again that he's this political animal and he can play the game from both sides. It's also he's the I hope love, for the future. I love the fact that that shot is the mirror, if you'll excuse the pun, of the um, the shot at the beginning where he's watching them stitch up Jack yeah and you see his reflection in the glass yep and he says and Ed lose the glasses and he has lost the glasses at this point he has Um, but the that really epitomises the difference between the way the the three cops shift reality Jack convinces you that what you want reality to be is what he wants reality to be so that you bring things around to his way of being Bud threatens you (laughs) and says this is the way things are or I'm going to punch your face in um, whereas Ed, he just states things completely with conviction and people go, oh, that must be right. Yeah. Oh, the other thing about the shootout of the Victory Motel, it's short. This is proof, folks, that if you have a big action sequence, it doesn't actually have to go on for 45 minutes of destruction. You certainly don't need to destroy half a city. And there's that line that Dudley says just at the end, uh, hold up your badge so they'll know you're a policeman. That that wonderful way of encapsulating, you know, once you're hiding behind this shield, you're beyond question. Also, it's such a... He's speaking to Ed as if to a child. He's still pulling the I'm the daddy um, and and what I say goes. And this will work out well for you if you're a good boy. Yeah. Trying to play Ed as Ed has been played and and ultimately the fact that Ed is able to flip the game on that and um, kind of effectively kind of take Dudley's place. And he stands on the cusp at the end uh, where where he could milk this and use, uh, you know, his new power to leverage uh, a much more advantageous position or he could keep pushing forwards to actually root out uh, injustice and corruption. Or he could step in and take over the organised crime syndicates that Dudley was trying to run. Remember what happened to the heroine in the end? Exactly. No one knows where it went. 
It's somewhere in Dick Stensland's house. The idea of him bartering heroism as well, that he's already been honoured once and he can get honoured again to cement him as exemplary cop in the eyes of the city. That, to me, suggests... Well, if nothing else, the fact that the journey that he's already gone on, he's going to make, at least try to make the right choices as, as things proceed forwards. It's not left on that kind of, ooh, like super ambiguous um, way. It's just, it presents that he has a choice. But he is definitely willing to play the fact that mm. once you've been uh, framed as an exemplary hero, uh, and and you're, you're part of the image, mm. once you're part of the image... It's amazing what people will do to help that halo not slip. Mm. Because you're not just part of your image, you're part of their image. But he's evolved his character and he's not just going to be playing everything by the book anymore. Mm. Absolutely. He can work outside that, which in itself is a form of corruption. So there's always got to be that tiny kernel of a state of moral superiority in Ed's case. Mm. Bud lives, but... He doesn't speak because Dudley shot him through the face, sideways, probably shattering part of his jaw. I don't know if he will ever speak, but there's there's a sense that he's really gone through the ringer and he's really had to sacrifice a lot of himself for this. And the fact that he's clearly no longer a cop anymore and it appears to be um, being driven away, almost a man who isn't there anymore and he can remake himself in Bisbee. It's about the happiest ending I could imagine for uh, Bard. It's it, it's a it's it's hard earned. It's incredibly bittersweet. But he's been through so much shit that he had to go through a similar amount of trials to actually come out of the other side a more well-rounded human being. Again, fantastic physical performance from Russell Crowe at the end. The subtlety, especially the emotional vulnerability in this film. It's it's amazing. A huge thank you to our special $15 sponsors this month. That's Dan Mayer, Stephen Lowe, Pascal Dooley, Jameis Enright, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Timothy Green, Mark Lush, David Garcia-Abril, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. Uh, last week's quick review podcast that went on for about 50 minutes was Tom Cruise's The Mummy featuring Tom Cruise as Tom Cruise. And this week, I think I'll be talking about Transformers 5, The Last Night. So jump on Patreon and support us if you want to hear all this juicy bonus stuff and get access to the archive of stuff that's Patreon exclusive. Okay, and uh, and that's it. We're, that, that is it for LA Confidential. It is... If, if for some reason you didn't watch the film and you just listened to us explain it, we're sorry we spoiled some of the key parts of it. We did tell you. Um, but you are now able to go in forearmed with a hell of an eye for detail for what's going to play out in front of you. Uh, and if you've uh, seen it before and loved it but didn't really... couldn't put a finger quite on exactly why, we hope we've helped to illuminate some of this stuff. So, thank you to Stephen Atterwell for a stunningly good choice of commission. You gave us the kick in the arse we needed to actually really do this one. It, it's been challenging, but it's also been a, a joy. So, thank you. Probably one of my yeah favourite commission yet so far. Thank you, Steve. Okay, we'll be back next week with... What's on the slate? Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll be back next week with Bunny Snuff Film, Watership Down. <laughs> Yeah. 
<laughs> this one's gonna be hard, folks. It's horrible. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. Off the record. On the QT. And very hush, hush. Jerry Goldsmith's LA Confidential. It's Leonard Bernstein's On the Waterfront, the light motif of which Jerry Goldsmith used for LA Confidential to evoke this time. I love this idea of soundtrack and score heritage.
She came here to wipe my ass. I believe we're through. Come on, don't pull that good cop, bad cop crap. I practically invented it. So what if some homo actor is dead, huh? Boys, girls, ten of them get off the bus to L.A. every day. <laughs> <laughs>